You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, quick word from a sponsor. Uh, it's Sock Fancy. And Sock Fancy is uh, it's, uh, what you might expect. It's a sock company, except instead of going to a store, Sock Fancy sends the socks to you. It is a random selection of awesome socks shipped anywhere in the world to your door once a month. They've got hundreds of designs. You'll never get the same pair twice. You can exchange it if you don't like a pair, and you can cancel anytime. The socks are uh, hip. They're cool. They feel good. They look good. Go to SockFancy.com slash Longform. That's SockFancy.com slash Longform. And enter the code Longform at checkout. You'll get a free pair of socks added to your subscription. It's a good deal. Thanks, SockFancy. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Good morning, Max. This is a a show you've been trying to do for many years, Max. Is that correct? It's true. It's true. I can't believe uh, it came through for you finally. (laughs) I know. I know. It turned out um, I had to ask. I had to just get up the courage to ask. You you were just waiting for it to randomly come to you? (laughs) Yeah. I had been waiting to, like, just run into Adam Moss on the street and- While you uh, had, like, microphones in your bag and, like, a quiet place to record? assault him with sound. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) instead, I elected to find his email address and ask him if he wanted to come on the show, and he said yes. And so he uh, came on the show. Adam Moss is the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine. And uh, it's an interesting time for New York Magazine and- every magazine and uh we talked about that also other stuff too it's a weird time for objects of all kinds <laughs> it's true it's a weird, <laughs> weird time for the world adam moss has done so much classic magazine making new york times magazine yep and he's been in new york for a long time and presided over the website growing and all that stuff and uh yeah i finally asked it's a good time if you want some good times sending out emails to all the people who want to know what you have to say do it with mailchimp they send out more email than anyone. Millions and millions of satisfied customers. They can't be wrong. I can't be wrong. Mailchimp. And now here's Max with Adam Moss. Hello, Adam Moss. Hello. Nice to be here. It is nice to have you. I uh, We had this scheduled. Yeah. And then uh, the world changed. The world did change. Uh, we're recording this, I guess, a week before it will air. We're recording it on a Wednesday, and it'll come out on a Wednesday, and we are a week out from the world changing. That's true. Have you settled into the new world? No. Have you? 
No. <laughs> no. I have not. Uh, they're like, um, yeah, real grieving things are still happening. I could at any point just like turn to scrambled eggs in front of you. Yeah, well, me too. Okay. So we can do that together. We can do it together. Good. Great. Uh, I'm glad to have that out there and not have to pretend like uh, <laughs> I'm not just like a pile of uh, like lump oatmeal. Um as I was preparing to talk to you, yeah, one of the things I listened to was this interview that you did with Brian Lair right after de Blasio won. Mm. And you said this thing, which uh, I found striking, given mm. the world changing, which was, uh, I've got it written down here, change is always good for the magazine industry, always. Well, I think it's good for journalism. It's what journalism is about, is change. Um, you can't write it about something that's static. News is about what is new, so there's plenty new right now. Uh, I'm not saying it's good for the citizenry or anything like that, but yeah, I mean, for journalists, it's an extremely interesting time. There's no denying that. Have you guys seen a spike in subscriptions like uh, the Times and um, the Post? We have seen some in subscriptions, but we've seen enormous, enormous digital audience growth. Mm. I mean, crazy. 100 plus, 120, 130% uh, over where we were. Did you guys have a plan? For what happened if Trump won? Not really. I, you know, I have to confess that it was, you know, we were not alone in the world and basically thinking that this was impossible. And it was somewhere around, you know, 8.30 or 9 o'clock on Tuesday night last week when it became apparent that first that not only everything that we were planning for that night and the next morning and the next week, the next issue, had to be completely scrapped. But in fact, really, we're, it was a whole reset mm -hmm. on everything we do. So what happens? Like when it's where where were you on on election night? When it's eight thirty and uh, I was in my house with some friends. Um, we were having dinner and you know had forty seven devices open and uh, and the dinner just got quieter and quieter and uh, and then really the people we were having dinner with just had to leave. They couldn't bear to be there anymore. Um, and I switched immediately into. Um, journalist mode and, yeah. and and had to sort of uh, be in kind of constant contact with the people who were manning and womaning, you know, our election night coverage. And, you know, we really, all the things set to go were all presuming a Hillary victory of different sizes. Um, but it was, I'd say around, you know, nine o'clock when it was just, okay, you know, I, I hate to make everyone do this because... Uh, I still don't expect this to be the outcome, but we really need to just start writing as if. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, by the time I'd say, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock came by, it was just more and more likely. And then there was all those hours uh, when it was obvious what was happening, but no one was calling the election. Right. Um, and so the question was, when do we release this out into the world? And what, what, what do we think is a credible moment? Um, to basically be writing in the tents of uh, Donald Trump being the next president. What's New York Magazine's job in that moment when you, like everyone else who lives within like 50 miles of us right now, um, didn't think this was going to happen? And you guys missed it like everyone else missed it. We certainly did. How do you talk? What's your job to your audience at that point when you've missed something like this? Well, I mean, it's basically to try to be smart and um, make sense of the moment with the talent that we have. And, and uh, they're going to be thinking about this. And I mean, they've, they've been hired for certain reasons and, and uh, their minds are basically why they've been hired and, and the force of their 
writing um, and sort of let them loose and, and help the reader understand, but also trying to give them some sense of comfort or at least comfort in a community mm-hmm. um, of people who might be feeling the same things. And it was very interesting to me that, you know, certain pieces just kept circulating. Um, and actually, Andrew Sullivan had written this the tyranny amazing piece. The Tyranny piece, um, which was... Man, uh, I reread it this weekend. It it continues to be the most, like, the smartest thing I've read about the election since Election Day, and he wrote it in May. He wrote it in May. I mean, his his prescience was unbelievable. And at the time, I have to say that, you know, he and I had a, a sort of playful exchange about, you know, you're, you're such a catastrophist. And, uh, we, we, should just, <laughs> we should just say basically, like, in May, Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece about why America was ripe for what he called tyranny. Uh, and he basically spells out this is before Trump had completely sewn up the nomination. Right. It was just almost at that moment. And, and no one, you know, it was everyone thought that even if he'd sewed up the nomination, it was it was essentially inconsequential because um, people didn't have it. There was no room in people's imagination to believe that this could possibly happen. Neither was there on the morning of November 8th. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's true. And but what happened i mean he basically lays out how this could go and at the time i read it and it felt like sort of like dystopian fan fiction absolutely you know and uh, and i remember you know i texted him i don't know it was probably about 9:30 um and just said i hate that you were right and he said i i hate it too but he was unbearably prescient and since the election that that story written again in may i mean it has never really not been in the top 20, 30 pieces that we have up at any one time uh, that people are reading. And since the election, every day, it's it's one of the top pieces that's being circulated everywhere. It was, uh, I would recommend that people read it, but it was a terrifying experience to read because I remember this exchange that I'd had with my dad. My dad called me after he read it and was like, I am, I am scared about the country in a way I've never been before. Yeah. And I was like, ah, yeah, come right. on, it's going to be fine. <laughs> like, they just try to stir stuff up, you know? Nope, that was, that was right. But I do believe that there's some solace in, uh, in, in wisdom. You know, it's, it's, uh, you don't have to just give people good news. You can, if you can help them understand what's going on, um, I, I, I think you've done a service. What is that service now for you? So, at some point, the shock of this will wear off. At some point, like my scrambled eggsness will, uh, <laughs> you know, solidify. And what is the role of New York Magazine in Trump's America? You know, I think it's to hold it accountable, to try to understand not just what happened, but what is happening. I mean, I think that we have to move pretty quickly. Now, this is we're in it, and. We have to understand it. Um, I hope our role also is to actually report from inside it, uh, not just comment on it. Um, but it's all part of the mission um, mm-hmm. to try to be as intelligent about it and as, in some cases as, as tough about it as we possibly can. Do you feel like part of, you know, I don't know what you think about this is like someone who's running a magazine called New York, but do you think that part of your job and part of the magazine's job is to try and break whatever echo chamber was in place. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about sure. this to Americas. You know, yes. It's like, at least in my life in New York, I wasn't talking to people who thought this could happen. Right. 
And I wonder now what magazines like yours, uh, whether you feel a responsibility to pierce that. Well, I would like to. I mean, it's, you know, it's certainly uh, a goal, um, but I think maybe a utopian one. There's been a lot of, obviously, a lot of criticism of the media for not breaking out of its bubble. And um, I think the media actually, I mean, you can look at the media at different stages of this whole thing. But the certainly the last five months, there was some incredibly strong reporting. And I, you know, I don't think there was any dereliction of duty and sort of helping people understand what the stakes really were here. But we didn't reach most most of us outside of our bubble. But I think that's really, it has to do with changes in technology, changes the way people get information. It's it's kind of beyond the performance of any one medium. And I think a magazine is, whose name is New York does understand that it's speaking to a certain audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's talking to that audience. Right. It wants to engage that audience in the way that that audience needs to be engaged. Well, that's why I um, ask, because it's like, it's... It... But we're never the... That, that white-collar worker in Detroit is not going to read us. Right. So there's no... I don't think there's any obligation to actually go and speak to them, but we actually ha- we have to help our own audience understand them. Yes, definitely. I think that's right. I think what you're saying is right. Uh, because there has been this push over the last week of like, we need to figure out how to break these barriers down and talk across these bridges and all these things. And it's like, um, that does feel utopian to me. And if you spend all your time trying to get a white collar worker in Detroit to read New York Magazine, like in the process, New York Magazine might get kind of shitty for the people who actually read it. Yeah, it might. You maybe can't do both. And it's out of our control anyway. I mean, it's, you know, people... Us, everyone else. I mean, you know, we reach most people through social media. We reach most people through Facebook, and uh, or not most, but a really strikingly large number. And those people are choosing what to put in their feed. They have control. We can just put stuff out there and be interesting enough that they want to share stories we write. But uh, ultimately, you know, there there is no one authority. New York Times is not an authority that has obviously broken down, broke down way before this election. And uh, all you can do is your best work and and, and hope that it, it uh, means something to the audience that's reading it, whoever that is. I talked to someone on your staff this morning and they said that you, you seemed invigorated. Well, you know, there's no question that there's a lot going on. And um, that uh, sort of turmoil... It's not just interesting in and of itself, but it, it, it surfaces sort of very large questions about how we live in the world, how we live in a democracy, our relationship to government, our relationship to each other. All of that stuff is, um, you know, that's incredible material. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's why we're in this business is to try to, you know, uh, make sense of change. And, and uh, you know, as I said, there is quite a bit of change. Can you remember a time in your career where the stakes have felt this high? Uh, you know, I suppose right after 9-11, um, and I, I, you know, I think this is still about 9-11, by the way. Um, How so? Uh, well, I mean, I think that the world, the, the sort of global nature of the world changed. Um, I mean, that's sort of the ways in which no one felt particularly safe in whatever world that they lived in, that that sense of, of peril of fear while not being absolutely present on the surface has never really left us um, and affects different people different ways and I wasn't here I was really far away on September 11th and um, I was like halfway across the world and stayed there for like months uh-huh. and uh, but 
Wednesday, uh, November 9th felt like I imagined it must have felt well, without was, this, like without the violence. Yeah. And with, and, and, you know, and it's, yes, I mean, uh, there was that same actual physical silence. I mean, you yeah. get on the subway on the Wednesday subway. A, w- a week ago today and, and people weren't talking to each other. People were sitting in stony silence, just staring out like zombies. There was, n- there was not a sound on the train, but like a third of those zombies on my car were crying. Yeah. You know, it was, it felt like this, uh, citywide funeral. Yeah. And it's so rare that this place, everyone is focused on one thing. It's so rare that you can walk down the street and know that everyone's thinking about the same thing. Yeah, that's true. And yet the other thing that happens is that actually strangers talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been in, you know, grocery store lines and things like that. And everybody wants to talk about this. My, you know, got a haircut <laughs> and like, you know, the, the, every single chair was, you know, on this. I was in Chicago this weekend and, uh, yeah, every, every single place I went, like airport, Uber driver, right. Nothing else. And that was actually, that was a, a, a phenomenon of nine eleven too, is that, that, uh, there was a community being built at the same time. And I, you know, I think that there's something of that going on now, even, even if there's an aspect of what's going on within our world where people are tearing each other to pieces. Yeah, well, you know. Anytime you feel like scrambled eggs, you got to tear someone to hell. (laughs) Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second and uh, tell you quickly about some sponsors making today's show possible. If you've been listening to this show uh, since the beginning, then you know that there is a fourth co-host, and she doesn't say very much, but she has been uh, present for many of our favorite interviews, the co-host is Reba, my dog. And finally, Reba is going to get her due on the long-form podcast because this week our sponsor is BarkBox. And BarkBox is a company that sends awesome stuff every month to your house for your dog. I have gotten one of these boxes and it had like insane great treats. Reba likes me way more at the park now. They had all kinds of toys that she didn't like devour in 30 seconds. They actually lasted. Uh, She was so psyched. She was super psyched. I opened this box and it was just like a world of glorious Reba magic. Uh, And your dog too can be that psyched if you go with BarkBox, they've got a bunch of different plans. You can do a one-month or a six-month or a 12-month plan. You can cancel any time. It's totally free shipping. Make your dog happy. Go to BarkBox.com slash longform. That's BarkBox.com slash longform. And when you sign up for a six- or 12-month plan, you'll get a free month of BarkBox. Free box of glorious magic for your dog. Go do it. Also sponsoring the show this week, Squarespace the uh, website that makes it so easy to build websites that maybe even Reba could build one. Uh, I wonder what Reba's website would be like. I feel like uh, it'd be like uh, it'd be like some combination of just like peanut butter and napping. It would be all uh, peanut butter and napping themed. Anyway, Squarespace. Squarespace is, uh, it is that easy. It makes it that easy to build a website. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything is drag and drop. It looks super professional. They've got these beautiful themes that work on any device. And uh, they've got themes for any kind of website you can imagine. A personal portfolio, uh, something for your business, a one-off project, something that's about peanut butter and napping. 
If you need a website, if you have a website you've been meaning to build, Squarespace is the answer. Go to squarespace.com, free trial, no credit card required. When you do decide to make a purchase, use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You get 10% off. Squarespace, set your website apart. All right, let's get back to Adam. Uh, all right, let's talk about you. All right. Okay. Can what, we, do you, what do you want to know? You have had this very interesting uh, career. I am, I'm going to try and run through it quickly. Mm-hmm. Born in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Grew up in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Went to Oberlin. Mm-hmm. Left Oberlin. Uh, spent six months as like a copy boy at the New York Times. Uh, yeah, nine months maybe, but something like that. All yeah. right. Uh, a handful of months, uh-huh. copy boy at the New York Times. Did not like that, is my understanding. You've read well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to zoom through this stuff with like magazine yeah. stuff. Well, right? I mean, I didn't. I, it's not that I didn't like it. It's the the copy class that I was in. Um, they were all people who were very serious about newspapers, and actually, my interest was magazines. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got this job by accident. So, uh, so I just felt kind of out of place. I had, a, you know, it was an amazing job to be a copy boy at the New York Times in 1979, which that's is the year there was. That's the gig, right? Yeah. Like that, you that were, was you were like the editor of your college paper. That's the best thing you can get. Absolutely the, um, you know, the best job. And I worked, actually, I even had a better gig, which is like I worked at night so that I could write stories during the day. But that whole, it was like this whole, you know, I was very fortunate that this whole thing was available to me, but it wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted was to be a magazine editor, which and, was an incredibly strange uh, <laughs> career goal at that point. No one wanted to be an editor. And you were super clear on that, like when you got out of school? I kind of was, yeah. I don't know why. Um, it's what I wanted. And I was doing, actually, I was, um, I uh, I had two gigs simultaneously, which is that I was working, uh, I was working at the New York Times at night, and I was also working as an intern at Rolling Stone. Um, Rolling Stone uh had started an offshoot called College Papers, um, which was run by Jan Wenner's really wonderful sister, Kate Wenner. And so she was she just hired three of us who had just graduated college to try to make a magazine for people in college. And I really loved that. Mm-hmm. But it was an internship. I wasn't being paid. I had to get paid. So I worked at the New York Times, and then she gave me a job. So uh, I left, and I the shock to me later was that I would spend so much of my career at the New York Times, which I did, which we'll, you'll get to, I'm sure, as you're running through my career. We will get there. But I want, <laughs> in that moment, when I mean, A, like knowing that clearly what you want to do at that age, I find striking. Mm. It's like I, I... I was a weird mutant. Like I did not have, I did not have any ideas myself. Uh, yeah. I, what, uh, what other ways did your weird mutantness manifest? You know, I was, everyone else was just, it wasn't like these days where, you know, kids are super anxious about what they're going to do for a living and all that stuff. And then when I graduated college, I mean, I'm 59 years old and um, nobody had ambition or no, I mean, not many people, not certainly not any graduate from Oberlin. Uh, you just kind of wanted to sort of screw around mm-hmm. and uh, enjoy your youth. And I guess I regretted that later, but I, at, at the time, I just was like, no, I really want to work. I really like this work. It's like makes me excited and happy. Youth and is I, for the week. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I had no problem with anyone else doing what they were doing. <laughs> but for me, it was, um, you know, I had grown up reading magazines. I was an adolescent and a sort of growing up person during an 
incredibly exciting period for magazines. And, you know, what was happening in New York magazine was happening at the New Yorker and Rolling Stone and and, and especially, I guess, Esquire yeah. at the time. And uh, You were and, like a kid, high school kid on Long Island reading Esquire? Oh, my God, yes. Um, I loved magazines. I don't know. I'm a freak. And so that's just what I wanted to do. And I was happy that I, I got to do that. Uh, were you clear then that you wanted to edit, not write? Um, yeah. Uh, because I tried writing and uh, I, I, I sort of sucked at it. Mostly what it was was that I was an editor writing, which is, you know, when an editor writes, the, that that thing comes down and they start to question every single word that they say. And mm-hmm. that's a terrible, terrible state for a writer to be in. Also, I found writing just incredibly isolating, lonely. Uh, you know, whereas magazines were like, this was fun. This was kindergarten. You were just making a, you know, blocks project together. And I, I, that was my excitement is working with other people and, and making this thing together. So you couldn't really do that as a writer. Hmm. There wasn't some part of you that was like, if I just like plug away at this, I'll get better at it. Uh, well, I was always pretty bad at <laughs> thinking that uh, I, I, I like to do things I was good at. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of, uh, it took me a long time to accept that there was value in doing something that you weren't good at. Um, and, you, you and got... I was actually a pretty good editor from the beginning. And uh, and I was sort of better at helping other people than I was at doing the thing myself. All right. So Rolling Stone, you're like, New York Times, thanks but no thanks. Uh, all you guys can chase your like Metro desk dreams, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go make magazines. Something like that. Something like that. And you end up at Esquire? Uh, yeah, well, I ended up at Rolling Stone. Oh, right. Rolling so, Stone. So, yeah. so, the, so that I ended up at Rolling Stone... Um, and we were doing this kind of uh, weird project because Rolling Stone College Papers, that was what it was called, terrible name, um, was really doing what Rolling Stone itself used to be doing. It was just that Rolling Stone had turned into a, 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 something of a more uh, corporate or Hollywood, at that, at that moment in its, its life, more Hollywood-driven and, and wasn't really dealing with the youth of America. And so this magazine was about the youth of America. So, But it didn't last. <laughs> it lasted three issues. And, um, and at that point... I had this weird expertise, which was um, theoretically I knew something about college students. So uh, Esquire, if for those people who are old enough to remember the old Esquire, every September used to do a college issue, um, which was always one of the better issues of the year. And uh, and so they were looking for a exactly me. They were looking for uh, somebody who was young enough but had a certain experience um, dealing with like the ideas of collegeness. So I always wanted to work at Esquire. And so they hired me. And then the day I got to Esquire, they folded the college issue. And uh, <laughs> But that was too late. They'd already hired me. Like literally the day you got there? <laughs> Absolutely the day I got when, there. When, when on your first day were you told that the thing you'd been hired to do no longer existed? So, yeah, lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was fine. I was in the door. And uh, and it was, a, you know, it was a very, for, some, for, a nerd, for a magazine nerd like me, it was a great, great thing because... It had been bought by these two guys from uh, Tennessee, Chris Whittle and Philip Moffat, and um, they were insecure enough about their ability to make a great magazine because they didn't have that kind of experience that they went and hired all the old great magazine talents from the Harold Hayes days, um, Byron Dobell and, and Lee Eisenberg and, and, and a number of other people, um, Adam Smith or uh, Jerry Goodman was his real name. Um, and... So I not only was uh, at Esquire at that time, but I was there with the people I had revered, and uh, and they taught me tons, and uh, you know I felt super fortunate about that. 
I feel like there's this thing uh, that I've encountered a lot in like institutions like Esquire, these like big media organizations, where um, there's a certain kind of young person who's ambitious, but not necessarily looking to like be a big name or doesn't want to be forward. Like, to, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't want doesn't to write. be a writer. Yeah. yeah. And knows how to talk to older people. Yeah, I guess I was always good at knowing how to talk to older people. Although, you know, like you know that kind of person. Though. Although like, I was really, I just blew it, you know, over and over again at the beginning because I was, uh, while I was in awe of uh, of a lot of the sort of famous people that I was working with, I also had like really pretty strong ideas. <laughs> so I would talk to them in a way I hadn't, I didn't have practice learning how you're supposed to talk to a writer and le- learning how to talk to talent and learning how to how fragile the ego of a talented person is, always almost. And that's a skill you learn as an editor growing up. They just would hand me, I remember this piece by William Buckley um, that I was handed and uh, and it was gibberish. I mean, (laughs) he did not speak English. I mean, he was obviously uh, a pretty smart dude and a complicated person. Um, But you know, on a pure, like, just communicating, what what the hell are you saying? <laughs> right. And uh, I, you know, wrote him back. And in those days, that's what you did. You wrote, you typed the thing on a typewriter, and then you put you put a stamp on it, and you sent it in the mail. And, you know, a week later, you got a response, and, and he wrote me back. I, I, I can't remember the exact line, but it was it was a one-sentence, fuck you. <laughs> and, uh, and with the, I think at that point, I even had killed the story, and he had, uh, and, and sent him a kill fee, which... Um, came back in shreds. He'd torn, he'd torn up the check. <laughs> Where did that confidence come from? Not me. <laughs> Strangely parented, I guess. Uh, you know, I I had been, I guess, really from reading a lot. I knew what I liked, and I just had some ideas about what I wanted to do. And uh, and I was so I was at Esquire then for another seven years, and. Um, and then I got restless. I guess this is more arrogance. And I, you know, wanted to run my own thing in 29. <laughs> and I had made a prototype for a magazine I wanted to do and, and uh, showed it around. And there was this one consultant guy, his name is Jack Berkowitz. Um, and, uh, and he looked at this thing and he said, this idea is just absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> what was the idea? It was a magazine called Manhattan, I think. It had a certain resemblance to what eventually became Seven Days, which, which well, I'll yeah. get to. So so I had done this thing, but it was like really just boneheaded about the business. It was like so naive about um, how you find a reader and how and how you can make a business out of that reader. You can say that now, but at the time, did you feel like you like had it all figured out? No, no, no. I actually, I actually knew that this was idiotic, but I really <laughs> had so much fun doing it. And I did it with friends of mine and it was like, you know, super fun. So like six Six months later, uh, Leonard Stern, who owned the Village Voice at the time, was actually looking to start another magazine. He was having a kind of bake-off, and that all he knew was that he wanted another magazine that maybe you know that wasn't quite so pinko as uh, the Village Voice was. And um, he put out a kind of open call, and everybody just went and presented their ideas. and And his consultant was this guy, Jack Berkowitz, and Jack Berkowitz said, "You know, you should really." like go and talk to these guys and like here retool your thing and and present it and i my meeting was at uh 10 at night really <laughs> um in uh in a skyscraper you know in midtown manhattan and you were 29 uh, i was 29 maybe even 28 um what'd you wear 
Oh man, I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, like, did, <laughs> but I'm sure I, I wore a suit. Like, like that's what I, <laughs> I must. I, that's what, I must that's have my worn question a suit. Is like... I must have worn a suit. <laughs> and uh, and he was uh, just silent as I presented, and I really thought I had completely just completely blown it. And I, you know, I was so awkward and sweating and uh, incredibly uncomfortable. I raced to the bathroom um, and uh, was pissing. And he came into the bathroom and uh, took the urinal next to me and said, like your idea, let's do it. <laughs> and, and that's... You're just like eyes facing forward. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. okay. <laughs> and that was how Seven Days started. And, wow. and then I did that for two years. So, uh, and that was like, just as fun as you can ever have ever ever in this business you got to tell me a little bit about it because i couldn't find one um yeah i went and looked and i couldn't find one. yeah well they're hard to find um what was seven days well what what it was at the time and what it seems in retrospect are kind of different so what it was at the time was just a magazine about politics culture and you know lifestyle i guess um and it was a lot of very very short pieces, um, which was mainly for economic reasons. We couldn't really afford long pieces. And I was getting a lot of people to write for more or less for free. And uh, this is what they would do. And it was, I assembled this amazing staff of people who didn't really care if they made any money or didn't care if they worked in a fancy magazine. They just kind of wanted to do something fun. And we put out this thing, which really was so amateurish, I can't even tell you. But it was colloquial in a way that actually was um, kind of way ahead of its time. It really sounded like blog writing. I, I was and, just say, are you about yeah. to take credit for the, for the voice of the internet? <laughs> <laughs> we kind of tripped into this thing uh, that... Lots um, of exclamation points. Yeah, right. That later other people invented. <laughs> uh, and it lasted two years and then it went out of business um, as a sort of consequence of uh, the there was a big economic recession in New York at that time. What did it feel like to finally be running your own thing? Oh, it was great fun. I mean, but it was basically great fun because, you know, everyone was my age. It was just, we were all just playing. And it was so, um, there were no expectations of it. it. You weren't working for, you know, kind of Nast or Hearst and no one was on your back. It was just essentially like a, a alternative or college newspaper that was, I, we were too stupid to know what we, what was not cool, <laughs> what was not the kind of thing you did. It was like, no, you didn't, you know, later on I would, would and still do say to younger people, no, that's just not going to work. Trust me, I've done it before. And then I wasn't ever saying that because I hadn't done it before. And so, you know, we did a lot of things that, you know, a, a, a more seasoned editor would have said, oh, no, don't do that. Is there like something that you have in your head when you say that? Uh, no. Although one of the things that like these days I'm reminded of is the there was a running subtext during the whole run of seven days, which was this, this war with Donald Trump over this piece we wrote about. He was having trouble filling his buildings um, and that that his uh, that his claims of success as a real estate mogul were false. Really ki kind of amazing in retrospect. And he was, you know, he went kind of apeshit at us and then also at, at Leonard Stern, his, a fellow billionaire who was um, was his sort of, yeah, colleague in that world. Uh which I was just him? at lately. I've just been remembering. Have, Have I ever met, met him? Uh, Trump? Yeah, I mean, not in any personal way, yeah. <laughs> but I've been, you know, I've been at events with him, and and uh, he once tweeted out that I was an idiot. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good. President called you an idiot. <laughs> Pretty good, right? Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> it's like being on the enemies list. 
we're joking. There actually is an enemies list. I'm going to go back to Scrabble Dice. Let's keep, let's keep going. Uh, so seven days ends. And then there was this period of time where, as far as I, I can tell, you started working as a consultant at the Times, but also you were like thinking about doing another one. I had another magazine idea. Uh, the Industry. It was called The Industry. And it was a magazine that was making the case that the movie business and the book business and the music business and ultimately the internet actually which was just beginning at that moment were all basically one industry and that was the ideas industry and this was a you know it was a, a magazine of of ideas but also of you know gossip and fun so there there was all this stuff smushing together and 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 I raised a whole bunch of money um, but not enough money and eventually I just decided uh, to give it up, which I'm, you know, in retrospect, as I look back on my whole career, I'm totally happy that I never got to do this magazine because I think it would have been not a good magazine, and I also think I, it would have been a misery to um, actually do. But at Why? that point, well, because um, it was a magazine about moguls, and to have to like deal with moguls as your, both as your subject and and also one of the flaws of the whole idea was that we, the, the the people who were going to eventually pay for it were, in fact, the people who it was about. Right. And that's always a tricky and, and uh, I think, dangerous thing to do in journalism. Anyway, I was at the New York Times as a consultant at the same time because I had to be making some money and was enjoying being back at the New York Times and sort of going wherever anyone wanted me to go. And uh, so I would be at Metro for a little while. I would be at business section for a little while. Um but they wouldn't let me anywhere near the magazine, which is the only thing that I really kind of knew anything about. I really didn't know anything about the things I was consulting with them about. And then eventually, uh, Jack Rosenthal, who was the editorial page editor, became the editor of the magazine. And he he said, you know, I actually would act like someone who knows something about magazines uh, here. And then eventually said, basically, you have to take a job. Um, you can't just do this as a consultant anymore. So I took a job and then was the editorial director and then eventually the editor of the Times Magazine for... 12 years total all of that time. 12 years at the Times. Twelve, Well, 13 if you count the consulting, yeah. Okay. Here's some questions I have about those, those 13 years that you just Got it. flew through. Yeah. One question I have is there's like not a lot about you out there, which is striking for someone who's like been running these magazines for uh, a, a good long while. There's certainly not a lot of writing by you, and there's not even that much writing about you. Uh, but a lot of it is from that period of time. Like most of what I could find is about like that kind of consulting transitioning to magazine time at the times and the tone of all of it. If I could just like paraphrase it is like sneering. <laughs> I well, yeah, there's some of it is sneering, but the, it didn't read that way. I mean, if you can like uh, understand where the sneering is coming from, the sneering doesn't feel that powerful. What I read it as was like, basically this person is making the New York Times cool. Well, that's a very generous way of looking at it. It was, but, but you know, I think that most of it was. Um, I was a a very foreign idea at the New York Times. They almost never would let someone um, from the outside in. Every, it's way different now, the paper. I mean, in that respect. But in those days, it's like you got there at the very beginning, and you grew up there, and it was all ingrown talent, and they did um, very little hiring from without. And especially my background was completely bizarre. And then what I did once I got to the magazine was um, had definite ideas about what a magazine was. And I did not think the New York Times magazine was a magazine and I thought it could be. And so, and Joe Lelyveld and, and Max Frankel uh, allowed me 
to define it on different terms than had been defined before. So it used to be the sort of illustrated version of the New York Times. We really were able to make it a magazine that had the sort of principles, including subjectivity, an alien idea at the Times. Um, and we were able to hire people who were great magazine writers. And so we were able to hire Michael Pollan and Michael Lewis and Lynn Hirschberg and um, Andrew Sullivan and, and uh, a whole host of people who... They're, they're some of the great long-form writers uh, of magazines ever. Were there challenges in, in trying to convince those folks to come write for you? Well, once they felt that they would be safe there and that, you know, the, the notorious New York Times copy desk wouldn't destroy their work or uh, things like that. I mean, they, you know, like in anything else, it's contagious. You publish something that uh, people like, that they want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone... Given the the reach of the New York Times and the halo of the New York Times authority, it was uh, ultimately it was very easy to get writers to write for the Times then because the audience was just fantastic. The other tone of all these things that got written about you in that time is like the word like wonderkind is all over it, you know. So I'm interested in what navigating that place as this like outsider who knew about magazines and who had left the Times and starts bringing in these big names and trying to do something different with the magazine, like what was hard for you then? Well, I mean, I suppose the New York Times itself, the people who worked at the New York Times, I mean, in just a technical sense, um, we were doing stories that were uh, in competition (laughs) with the desks of the New York Times. So that, I mean, this is still a problem at the New York Times magazine. Right, that Um, dynamic's not gone. That dynamic's not gone away. But but for my era, I was lucky enough that the, the mandate was just make a great magazine, period. That's it. So... Remember, Michael Kelly did this, uh, what became a kind of legendary piece called St. Hillary, um, just after Hillary uh, Clinton became first lady. And um, there were so many other people who wanted to be writing and wanted to get that time with Hillary Clinton. And, and we did. And, and so we were that, that competition was fostered as mm-hmm. opposed to um, sort of uh, silenced. Mm-hmm. Did you like that competition? Like, are you a competitive guy? Well, no, I am definitely a competitive guy. Um, but I didn't, no, I didn't. It was just basically uh, having to sit through a lot of people yelling at me. <laughs> uh, that sounds fun. Yeah, well, it's part of the job. <laughs> it's always part of the job. What was the part of the job that you really loved? Like, what was the best part of it for you? Um, well, uh, I'd say, you know, the words and the pictures, <laughs> you know, in the end, you know, we were able to publish some really great journalism and I do love a great story. Were you good at being a boss? I don't know. You have to ask the people. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I developed like everyone does, uh, you know, a certain way of being. I mean, I my essential mode of bossness is to nudge and nudge and nudge and just be a pain in the ass. I don't yell at people. I don't, you know, I'm not like that kind of person, but I am really irritating. <laughs> and um, and so I just uh, would push and push and push. And a lot of good work was done. So I don't know whether that was because of me or what. You but, can take a little bit uh, whatever. Um, but it, I've always hired, I think hired well. Tell me what you're looking for in a writer and then tell me what you're looking for in, a, in an editor. Um, well, the same thing. It's just basically about the, uh, you know, how they think and how they express themselves. And, 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 you know, when I'm looking at new people, whether they can 
think in a way that will add to what we're doing and not duplicate what we're doing, that they speak in our language, but they're challenging each other. The space that they occupy actually grows because you hire them rather than shrinks. And that's what I look for in both a writer and an editor. And how, how do you figure out how people think? You, you know, you read them. That's one way. Um, and you talk to them. That's the other way. <laughs> uh, it's not actually that complicated. You, you know, we hire, you know, we're always hiring. And I would say that it's absolutely true that you always know in the first two minutes whether this is going to work out. Really? It was always that way for you? Or like now, you, now you've developed like your No, success? I think it's always been. Really? And I, I think anyone who hires doesn't say that is a liar. <laughs> really? <laughs> you go through the motions uh, of the conversation. And, and, and the, you know, the, the great interviews uh, you have with people are like people who at the end, you've actually learned something about what you do. Hmm. Um, and sometimes that happens and it is thrilling. It's great. Ah, oh, such like a yeah, such an optimistic way to think about that process. Well, it's you know, it it's good. It's fun. It's one of the things I like to do. How much time do you spend doing that? Oh, it's way too much. Um, yeah, I mean, like how much of your time? I don't want to totally lose the thread on our chronology here, but running New York Magazine, like what percentage of your time is managing people and hiring people? And uh, I would say managing people, and you know, people is like seventy percent of at, at you know at the sort of level I'm at, um, and really any person who runs a magazine or magazine and websites or whatever yeah management is what you do man you mm -hmm. it's like it's um it's you are completely dependent on other people to to do great work and so you have to make sure that they are um given room to do that work and and get along with each other and uh are inspired and all that stuff and that's that's managing does it feel um, like, like a necessary evil to be able to deal with all the words and pictures or do you actually love like that Oh, no, that I love that and I, you know, I wish to God. I mean, the, the, one of the good and bad things about New York Magazine at this point is that it's pretty, it, it's way larger than it was. And so the larger you get, the more managing you have to do and uh, it, it squeezes out the time that you can spend on the actual journalism. I still get to do quite a bit of it and I love it. Um, but it becomes less and less because you're, I mean, especially now, I mean, I'm really skipping ahead. You know, you're constantly trying to figure out how to maneuver through a, uh, um, just enormous changes in business models and things like that and how that affects journalism. we got to talk about that, but I'm not going to, even though that was an amazing segue, I'm not going to give you <laughs> Tell me about the transition from leaving the Times uh, and, and going to New York. Why did you leave? So when Bruce Washington bought New York Magazine, um, and they were doing a kind of listening tour of people telling them what uh, what they thought the magazine needed at that point, I was on the tour and I, I knew that it was all a sort of covert job interview. And I thought, you know, I, I might actually want to do this. And uh, even though I'd had, a, I, I'd had, a, I suppose, a good career at the Times ahead of me, New York had been a magazine that I had loved very much back when I was a teenager. Yeah, um, Clay Felker days. In Clay Felker days. And... I was excited about the opportunity to uh, have a shot at uh, editing it, and I got that opportunity. Do you like put on a suit for your presentation? Uh, for that, God, I don't even remember. <laughs> get Although, off, like, get look, off look, look at me now. You can't see it on the on this podcast, but <laughs> I now, you know, I'm in jeans and t-shirts, and you know, it's uh, the the olden days when I used to like suit up to go to work, and used to feel that the especially the boss guy should yeah. be like, you know, all buttoned up and, and dressed up and so the people would respect the man. That's gone. I'm so glad I missed that era. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have failed in that era miserably. Um, 
So you go to this, you go to this new place, this new big place. new place, and you have now been there for a while. Twelve years, almost thirteen. Thirteen years. Mm. That's a long time. Yeah. There have been some changes in the industry over those 13 years. There have, years. yes. <laughs> changes in the industry and changes in the world. Um, I feel like I the one thing I have heard you talk a lot about is the transition from print to digital and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Although, at the same time, you guys have done a, a really good job with Thanks. that. Thanks. And I wonder what you think of as the keys to that success. We actually had a profitable, back in 2005, we had a profitable web operation. And the reason is arcane. I'm not going to even bother with that, but it had to do with the digital part of the magazine had been uh, created in partnership with Cablevision that wanted fashion <laughs> as part of what they were doing. And fashion was you know, a luxury product. And if you were a, a, an early adapting luxury advertiser, you would go to us because we were the only ones doing it. So if you had a runway show for Mark Jacobs, we would have that. But we were profitable. So that basically, I mean, I had just come from the New York Times and uh, where they were sort of the whole sort of web operation was aborning. And I was very excited about that, actually. I mean, I remember, you know, for instance, 9-11 at the New York Times, you know, we made a really, uh, uh, one of the, issues of a magazine that I'm most proud of my whole life in three days because uh, 9-11 was a Tuesday and we had to close on a Friday and um, it just we didn't want to wait those 10 days and so we you know we just put it up and I thought oh my god what a miracle the internet is <laughs> you could actually just sort of push a button and publish and instantly it was there and so I was unlike other magazine editors who were nervous or scared or uh, basically cynical about the internet. I was a great uh, enthusiast or excited about it. And so we we started a news operation. I mean, and basically that's all we did. We just like, we believed in news. We didn't believe you just put the magazine up there. We believed that there was a different kind of um, way to write and a different kind of journalism that could be done in this other medium. And, and even in those early days, we just simply did it and uh and and we did it in uh sort of news first and then food and eventually and you know vulture entertainment and 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 the cut for fashion and then um etc and then we and then we've you know and and we had a principle which was the magazine itself had these constituent parts um it was a general interest magazine and so it was easy to just strip each of the mm. parts and 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 make a digital magazine out of that um with the same point of view and i think really the answer to your question is it's the same point of view is that there is a kind of we 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 one of the things that the uh internet has given us entirely is that even even the whole magazine is mostly read the magazine is read physically by people who read it, and that's fantastic. But its essential audience is through the web. So, um, you know, that's where you get the millions of readers, uh, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands of readers. Suddenly, the magazine itself had to change. The magazine itself became national and international because New York was actually too small. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the magazine was no longer, and in fact, in, uh, it really never was entirely about the sort of concrete um jungle of New York City, uh, but it was now um, about a certain way of looking at the world. It was about a sort of New York cosmopolitan view 
of things. It kind of gets back to the question of how do you talk to the blue-collar worker. The magazine was never about the blue-collar worker. The magazine was always about, I mean, originally it was just for New Yorkers, um, but eventually it became New Yorker-like people, whether they lived in L.A. or San Francisco or London or Paris. And that principle is very easy. Once mm -hmm. you, it's very clear. And so once um, once it became sort of obvious that that's what we were doing, we were just, it was a sort of, suddenly we were a magazine of sensibility, not of place, um, then everything else followed pretty easily. What role does, did, did quality play in the, tr the kind of work you were trying to do on the web? Like, were you focused on it being as good as what was in the magazine? Were you not worried about that? Were you will willing for the bar to go lower? Like, how did you think about that? Well, I mean, the quality, the quality standard had to be the same. It's just that what constituted quality in a web story was definitely going to be different than a magazine story. Mm -hmm. A web story is mostly written relatively quickly. Um, and so that you didn't have those sort of layers and layers and layers of um, thinking and rethinking and rethinking and editing and reshaping and all of that stuff. As an editor, how do you calibrate for that? How do you know if something's good? Uh, well, don't you know? <laughs> no, I'm not the editor of New York Magazine. Uh, I, don't, I don't just know. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, we've published some stuff that I think is not great. Um, and uh, and they're definitely, uh, you know, you, it's a, like, a, the old definition of obscenity. You know quality when you see it. Yeah. Um, is it smart? Is it well-written? Does it make you laugh? Does it make you cry? Does it make you think? You know, these are all things that you apply, whether it's a, you know, 8,000-word uh, story that's been reported over five months or um, something that someone had to sit there, you know, as uh, the election returns are coming in and, yeah. and write in an hour um, and get out. There are, there are a handful of people who were with you at the New York Times Magazine and are with you now at New York. And I'm interested in those relationships with writers and uh, from your perspective, why those work, why those people come with you. Like, w help me understand the relationship with Andrew Sullivan or Frank Rich or, uh -huh. or one of these people you've been editing for right. 20 years. Well, I mean, I think, you know, most magazine editors have certain writers they've had long relationships with. You know, I've known Frank Rich for since Esquire. Um, and uh, he's, he's my friend. Andrew's also my friend. Um, and, you know, uh, we have enormous respect for uh, each other. I have, I, I think he has respect for me, but I have huge respect for both Frank and Andrew, um, just to name two. Uh, and they, I think writers go where they feel safe, appreciated, um, where they believe in the values of editing. Some places are really in opposition to, the editors are in opposition to writers. That's That, that happens a lot. And, what does that uh, look like? Help me understand what that looks like. Um, you know, the editors resent the writers and the writers resent the editors. It's just, it's like bad, just bad blood that happens. It um, sounds terrible. Well, it's because, the you know, the, the, the they don't appreciate, they're not basically empathetic about the other's problems. Um, that the the editors are worried about deadlines and they're worried about the mechanics and they're worried about things fitting and they're worried about um, that sort of thing. And, the, and, and, and they're impatient with the writers who are slow or whose thinking may not yet be so perfectly 
formed and, and therefore the editors have to do more work and they don't they resent the work or the editor has one idea and the, the writer has another idea and they're itself at war I mean especially given a place where the ideas themselves come mostly from editors and the editor kind of imagines what the piece will be and then the writer will always write something different and I think that's a great thing um, but sometimes it can get frustrating mm-hmm. from an editor's point of view so you know, some places that's badly negotiated. I mean, it's intrinsic. In some places that's badly negotiated, and I hope uh, where we are, um, it 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 feels like a partnership. And is part of your job just like maintaining tons of those partnerships? Is that like part of your value as a as the editor? I guess so. I mean, it's you know, and it, it's all it's it's all about human beings. So you you know, you are dealing with a whole mess of human beings who are. Um, creative people and and so yeah inevitably quite a bit of your job is um is making sure that they can do their best work and are happy doing it when does that get hard what after doing being in new york for almost 13 years like what what's hard about that now for you Uh, that part of it's not hard um you know the hard part is is uh constantly figuring out you know assaults on the business model and um, how to how to have journalism changes because of it um, or doesn't? Um, what what are the standards that are actually most important? Um, those kinds of questions are are hard and also interesting. Mm-hmm. So, how do you gauge the success of a story? One thing that I think has been has come out of this era of uh, this, this digital moment where you can track things in mm-hmm. a way that we never could before is I think there's a, a, a very understandable sort of human nature tendency to write things that will do well and write things that will get like... Traffic. Yeah, traffic. <laughs> that horrible word, traffic. Well, that's one part of it for sure. And then uh-huh. there's this other part which is like, they'll just get clapped for, you know, mm-hmm. by people who spend their day yeah. clapping. Yeah, they can especially do incredibly well on social media and for example, you know, yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How much does that affect... Like the way that you assign stories now, how much does that affect the way you think about this stuff? Um, it one of the things that we found it doesn't really affect it. I mean, one of the things that we found over time is that the best work gets read, and that's that. So you don't actually, um, we you don't edit cynically. It, I know people probably don't believe that, but you it, it, one doesn't really edit cynically. Convince them. You don't. Well, there's no way to do it except to tell you that it's true, and that uh, that in general when you've published a good piece most of the time not all of the time but most of the time it will get found and read and look that's why we're all doing this you don't want to publish a piece that nobody is interested in so there is a kind of positive conspiracy between audience size and good editing and good writing and and good publishing looking back through that career well a consistent theme in this is you looking for another thing. Yeah. And now it seems like you're in this place where maybe you're not. And I wondered whether there's ever any part of you that uh, wants to go off and do something from scratch. Uh, No, I mean, I think one of the, uh, for better or worse, (laughs) and both is the truth. You're in constant entrepreneurial mode these days as a journalist. You are constantly having to reinvent things. And... Um, you know, we just started a 
an e-commerce site called The Strategist, which is, um, and, and our approach to it was journalistic and like to make great writing, which, which would be about things that you might want to buy. And it's great. <laughs> Let me just say, there's like plug that right now. It's like, it's really, it's actually great journalism of a certain kind. Um, and I hope it's also a good business. It feels weird to ask you this question, uh, given the apocalypse, but, um, how do you stay engaged? Like, how are you not bored? Oh my God. It is weird to say that. How could you be bored? It's so interesting. It's always so interesting. Like uh, you've been doing this for so long. It doesn't you. get boring. You know, it's different every day. You can, you walk in every day. The world is different. There's different stuff to, you know, what a, what a privilege to, um, be in a position where you're being paid to pay attention to a changing world. It's like, you know, it's, it's fun. It's hard, but, um, it's, you know, most people just have their dinner conversation to vent this stuff. And, you know, we have magazines. Adam, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to long form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Mickey Capper. Our intern was Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, our friends at MailChimp, BarkBox, Squarespace, and Sock Fancy. Get yourself some socks delivered to your house every month. Go to SockFancy.com slash longform to get a free pair of socks added to your box. But thanks, of course, most of all, to Adam Moss. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, and I appreciate him doing that one. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.